On this day, Palm Sunday, those churches which follow the order of the liturgical year have a chance for eight days of hour by hour uh, walking with Jesus. Thanks to the enormous amount of detail and the enormous amount of time which the four Gospels have each given to these last days, we're able to match, to some extent, what we do liturgically with what Jesus was doing in real space and time. My dream would somehow to have something going in the church for every one of those minutes, but it might require our congregation to take the week off and the week after to recover from all those all-night sessions. It's worth trying for, however. So we begin with Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday leads us to Good Friday, and Good Friday leads us to Easter Day. It's a journey from victory, if you like, to defeat, from being the victor to being not just the vanquished, but being the victim, from Jesus making his victory lap as the one in whom all the hopes and fears of what was left of that great kingdom of Israel had invested that this maybe would be the chance to bring back the glory days of a thousand years ago to that entire community, plus the Romans, plus the temple, turning on him as one, expelling this one individual Jesus on Good Friday, putting him on the cross. And then on the Sunday, the first day of the week, Easter day, Jesus rising from the tomb, known only to a very few witnesses. The women first, getting it secondhand, and the men getting it thirdhand from the women. And that tension then between public proclamation and messianic secret becoming the life of the church for to this day. So it's a complex and rich procession of events. And it's also a day, this day, that is drenched in irony. I do not normally think that irony and worship have much to do with one another, Worship is usually meant to be utterly sincere, that we're looking for depth, but on the surface at least, what you see should be what you get. Whereas irony is the complete opposite. It gives us an occasion for dissembling in which things are seldom what they seem. Indeed, the word irony comes from the Greek ironia, simulated ignorance from iron dissembler, an almost satanic sense in which language is being used to subvert itself and put the hearer into a state of either knowing, understanding, or total confusion. Put into use, it denotes by using language that normally signifies the opposite of what it's saying, and it takes on additional levels of connotation, particularly in dramatic irony which is, I quote, a literary technique originally used in Greek tragedy by which the full significance of a character's words or actions are clear to the audience or reader, although unknown to the character. We see a lot of this, not just because we've read the story to the end, but because we, the reader, know something of what is going on that the characters do not. How does this apply today, Palm Sunday? Today we see Jesus 
heretofore identified as a prophet from Nazareth of Galilee, an itinerant prophet, if you like, now elevated as he comes into Jerusalem as the Messiah, the one anointed to save Israel, or Judea, rather, which is what's left of that great kingdom, and drawn into Jerusalem in a triumphal procession which richly uh, notes the post-exilic period of the prophet Zechariah and some of the intertestamental activity that's been going on. There's a subversive element to this procession because it has become a symbol of resistance, of armed resistance, hopefully. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Whatever the power of the way he presents himself as this Messiah, the people respond to it as one. Stirred up by the hope that after a millennium of slow erosion and catastrophic collapse in alternate, as a so-called great nation, the fortunes of God's chosen people might be turning again. So he is acclaimed. The irony here is that this same Jesus within days will be condemned as a criminal and the same crowd, the very same crowd, will be calling for his execution. But the further irony is that today, as they cheer him on, they are right. He is the Messiah. He is the one who will save them. More to this. If he had indeed just fulfilled their initial expectations, walked on that pathway of garments and palm leaves, and suddenly behind him a heavenly host were there, armed to the teeth, and the blood of Jerusalem ran, with the blood of dead Roman soldiers, he might have taken Judea to victory. But for how long? Or he might have simply led them to another defeat, as so many before him had done. Whereas the Jesus of Good Friday, by going to defeat, with the sign King of the Jews posted on his cross as an act of ultimate irony, will lead the whole world to freedom, and is still doing so. We celebrate today with many levels of consciousness, both the sense of what happened already historically and the sense of what is yet to happen eschatologically. And, of course, Jesus is king, even now, contrary evidence notwithstanding. It is especially telling this week, as we have felt once again in this nation of ours, the burning sensation of our own military muscle being flexed, that Jesus the Christ will achieve his victory through weakness. Blood will be shed, but the only blood shed that bring about the victory of the church will be the blood of Christians. The losers will ultimately be the winners. The drama of Good Friday will repeat itself again and again over the last 2,000 years as the blood of martyrs waters the roots of the church. So we may speak of sacrifice, if you like, as well, when we speak of the death of Jesus. But we misspeak if we simply assume, like the pagan gods of many of our ancestors who were impaled on trees and poured their lifeblood into the earth so that the crops would grow again, that he is simply cut from this mold and is here to placate an angry god, his father, 
with whom he has perhaps made some secret pact from the beginning of time. He may have made a pact, but not to placate an angry parent, rather to show to angry children who cannot be at peace with one another the depth of their own depravity. Rather than this being sinners in the hands of an angry God, this really is God in the hands of angry sinners by his own choice. And whatever the long-term cost to God of three days of death, the benefit is to be a revelation of the heart of God for all who come after. Not just a God who condescends to step into and out of the fray, but one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The lesson here, the step that takes us from Jesus as Savior to Jesus as Lord, from a historical figure who affects our future escape, and for now is content to leave us well enough alone as long as we keep our noses clean, to one who even now as king rules over creation and those who are entrusted with the everyday real-time task of bringing that kingdom into being, that one now speaks to us of the cross and the way of Jesus. How does one respond always, especially when one has not been asked to give one's life recently for Jesus? We read of others who go to the point of death. We are still not there. The day may come. What do we do in the time being? Paul gives us some applications. Do nothing from ambition or conceit, but in humility count each other. More, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I've often let these lines flow beautifully with Paul's argument without stopping to reflect that if anybody actually did what Paul is asking, this world would be transformed from the veil of tears that it is into something more like heaven. In humility, he says, fine. And where does humility usually leave me? As far as here, brooding over my lack of it and trying to wish myself into more of it. I then get involved in a kind of ping-pong game with God. The whole thing gradually loses energy. Inertia takes over, and I have not managed to make myself humble. I pray, actually, that God will do something outward to humiliate me. That might bring me a little closer but I always hold my, my breath. What does Paul say? He doesn't say stop there in humility. He's saying count others more significant than yourselves. Why not try for a moment, instead of constantly thinking yourself down, which has tremendous value, to simply see if you can lift others up instead? You might find, as I do, that you don't spend much of your life trying to do that. Paul says, try working on that. Now, you do that and you realize right away how radically that flies in the face of everything that our culture has tried to teach us about how to get ahead, how to climb the ladder of success. 
how to distance yourself from those beside you so they fall behind, etc., etc. This is so much taken for granted for us that we actually approach our Christian life in the same way. What if as soon as we were brought into this world, we were constantly being taught to believe this, count others more significant than yourselves, more meaningful, more useful to God, of more value to God, whatever they present to us, of more infinite worth maybe than we. That's a different way of sinking oneself down in humility because what we're being asked to do is start the process of lifting somebody else up. Which others then? The ones above us on the ladder? That's easy. The ones we admire, of course, the ones we are trying to model ourselves after, of course. The survivors, the victors, to whom go the spoils, the winners. That's a start, and that's easy. I suspect Paul is saying we would do better to seek the good of those who can do us no good whatsoever. Practice giving that work of grace, of prayer, which it really is, to those who will never cross our paths. And if we were to be associated with them, somehow we would say, I don't know if I've ever seen this person before. Think of perfect strangers like those who sit on the Monroe Viaduct as we head off to the opera or the lake shore with their little vessels waiting to receive some of our spare change. Think of all those in life who approach us with their needs, from whom we shrink. Try then to turn those interactions which lead us to be separate into interactions which begin an active work of relationship. How do I do this? How on earth do I look at someone who in a few seconds has presented to me nothing but trouble and begin to see them as more significant than myself and to lift them up. What I do, and I get it from Luther, who said we should love as God loves, and God doesn't just love what is lovely. He loves what is unlovely, and he loves what is unlovely into loveliness. It's a creative act of love. I look at people like that, and I make them into my mind into children. That old hunched figure with the thing, Think, what was he hoping for? What did he dream of as a boy of five or six? Where did he think he was going to end up? At medical school, maybe. What was his goal? What was his hope? What led him to get up in the morning? That's still in there somewhere. And if God is looking at that soul right now, you can be sure that's what God sees. What was his potential? What is his potential now as it's wasted away, to my eyes anyway, on this bridge? That's my little lesson for today. (laughs) That's all. But try it. It's very small. It's very tiny. It's very doable. We live for God and we live for his glory absolutely. And all of these wonderful apocalyptic readings cause us to think big. And we want to see glory around us, flashes from the sky and things instantly transformed. But let's not forget, as the scriptures are always telling us, 
that very great things are done in the most humble of ways. Very little tasks done in utter obedience can yield dramatic results. And let us try to see the God whose glory we see in the most beautiful aspects of creation, in the most humble, forgotten members of his creation as well. Amen.